0: Words on Water. Words on Water. Welcome to Words on Water and take it from the top a podcast series featuring interviews with notable water sector leaders to help you find your way through the challenges of today. I'm your host, Tom Kunitz, and my guest today is West Past President Paul Bowen. Paul, welcome.
1: Thanks, Tom. Uh, it's always good to talk about water. I'm sitting here looking out at a full lake and uh, just makes me think about water and all the,
0: the value that it brings. Well, I hope that lake is still full come August, Paul. <laughs> so do I. So do I. You know, Paul, uh, I, I was really uh, honored to be on the Board of Trustees when you were president. And I remember from your term as WEF president, your determination to keep WEF focused on the future. Now, of course, we, we all need to live and function in the present. But you remind us that one day the future will become the present. So it will serve us well to try to plan for that day. I know one of your favorite sayings on this point is from Abraham Lincoln, and he said, the best way to predict your future is to create it. You know, Paul, for the past year, we, like the whole entire world really has been living in a very different kind of lifestyle than any of us would have ever expected. So what went wrong? Do you think that we failed to create our future properly?
1: Well, that's a, that's a really good question, Tom. I, I, I'm not sure it's that we failed. Uh, to create the future. I think what Lincoln was really trying to say was that we really need to, to plan, to, to control, to move, move in a certain direction. We need to think about how we're going to use our planning, our skills to, to our advantage. And, you know, we can't control everything, but I think what we can do is we can plan and we can plan for the unplanned. Uh, that's, I think, what really smart leaders do is they look, look at you know, what, what might happen. They look at the risks that are out there and they try to build something that they can use to mitigate those risks uh, should they occur. You know, I think of ways you know, that the driving app and as you drive down the road, uh, it'll say uh, caution you know, object and road ahead or caution vehicle on the side of the road. That is such a great tool, but we don't really have that for where we're trying to go in many cases. So we have to look for other indicators. You know, when I uh, was on the board and we president, president um, we completed a new strategic plan. It was a lot of work, but it kind of gave us that roadmap to the future. You know, The direction that we wanted to go, the the objectives we wanted to achieve, and how we were going to get there. It wasn't so much a wish list as it was a roadmap, a a guide to, to get us there. And if everything went right, we would probably hit there. But as we know, you know, life is imperfect and things happen and things pop up. So we have to be able to plan for what, what might be ahead. You know, one of the things that WEF had done was that they had done a risk assessment and that the results of that came in when I was, uh, on the board and president. And so we were able to look at those risks and try to look at what were the key things that might cause us to derail and to set up mitigation plans for those.
0: Well, again, Paul, just as you said earlier, plan for the unplanned. I think that's, that's very w- well worth repeating, plan for the unplanned. And I also like your analogy about the strategic plan being like a, like a roadmap, you said. The strategic plan is setting where we want to go. That's, that's setting the plan. And I guess maybe the risk assessment that you were talking about then maybe determines what's going to be in the emergency road kit.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like having everything you need in the back of your car when you go on that trip with Waze. You know, it's not that you got to just have a spare tire because having a spare tire without a jack and the tools to, to change that tire are, is not valuable. So we need to, to look to the future. We need to look to where the risks are, and then we need to have the tools that we can't have to address those risks should they develop.
0: Mm hmm. mm -hmm. Well, let's let's talk about how this is actually put into practice. Uh, You worked for the Coca Cola company for the past 21 years, and recently retiring. Congratulations on your retirement, by the way. Thank you. Uh, While you were at Coke, you were responsible for corporate sustainability. And this included making sure that Coca Cola's global and North American facilities were meeting water and wastewater regulations and company standards. So can you give us an example from your own experiences there at Coca-Cola about this preparing for the worst or planning for the unplanned? How did it play out in your own experiences?
1: Yes, it was uh, quite an honor to work for the for the company during this time because they were really focused on a key element of their uh, their strategic plan, their growth, and the risks that were associated with it. The company, of course, as most companies always has long-term goals for growth and development, growing the business. But about 15, 16 years ago, 17 years ago now, um, in 2004, the board of directors of the company recognized uh, that water was a critical, going to be a critical issue uh, for the company, that it was uh, a natural resource it was key to every uh uh, product that we made Mm -hmm. and so they said that uh, we needed to pay attention to water and the risk that were associated with water because without water there are no coke products there's no juice there's no bottled water products there's no cleaning there's no sanitation there's there's nothing that we can do Uh, without water. It is truly our single most important ingredient in what we do. Right, So understanding that they wanted a strategy to mitigate the risk of not having the water we need. And it wasn't just, you know, it says, it sounds really good, but at the time there were almost a thousand different Coca-Cola bottling facilities around the globe. All those owned by franchise partners. So the company didn't own them. Those were were owned by our our associates, our partners. And so we had to go to each plant and develop a risk assessment for that plant, roll the plants up into a countrywide risk assessment based on the number of plants in the country, then take all those different countries and roll it up into a business unit and then roll it up into a company global wide risk. And that told us then where our risks were and how we were facing those. And it was around a variety of issues, everything from not having enough water to not having enough clean water, to having water that was too costly, to social risks, to all sorts of other risks that, that we could look at. And you know that type of approach seems pretty obvious to us today. But in 2004, that was very novel. In fact, the company kind of pioneered some of that risk strategy. And and Tom, the funny part about it was the first risk assessment was a 300 question questionnaire in Excel (laughs) that was sent out to these almost a thousand plants. And people told us, oh, you'll be lucky to get, you know, 60 percent we had 95% compliance. 95% of those plants answered that questionnaire, which told me that we had done a good job explaining to these local people the value and that they saw the value of water to their business. Um, So once we, we looked at that, we set some very ambitious goals. We set that strategy to try to achieve those goals. We use a metric called water use ratio, which is the volume of water needed to produce a volume of product. And when we started the strategic plan, the typical water use ratio for a plant was somewhere between three and a half to four. So that would be three and a half to four liters of water to make a liter of Coke. And since the product is mostly water, what we would assume is that anything that didn't go into the the product went down the drain so if it took four liters to make a liter then three liters went to wastewater. so right. we were losing a lot of a lot of water and we didn't really want to do that we wanted to reduce the amount of water that we were using so that more water could be put into product so more water so we could grow the business more so we set out to redo re, to reduce that that limit. We had several goals. Those were done in. Uh, those goals were set in conjunction with partners, as well as in with conjunction with uh, NGOs. And we really did some detailed work, going in and looking at where water is used in the manufacturing process. And how could we then reuse water in that manufacturing process over and over again? How could we become more efficient in doing some of that work? And so we were able to very successfully meet goals that we had set. Um, And when I left the company, the water use ratio was just below two to one it was like 1.89 liters of water to make a liter of Coke. And that was a significant achievement. You know, I like to say that the tipping point was that when we went below two, for the first time, we became a beverage company. That prior to that, most of our water, most of our main ingredient, most of what we made was wastewater. And so we were able to go below two and most of the water went into product so we truly became uh, a beverage company
0: well P- paul that you know when you put it in those terms you say prior to that you know we really were a wastewater company it, that's what really causes people's eyes to open and say oh, my goodness we we need to do a better job at this and, you know, and, senior, man- and-
1: senior management didn't like me uh, making that <laughs> statement, statement. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but what a tremendous accomplishment! I mean, this is a great example of commitment to you know honoring and recognizing how precious our resources are, and and getting your water use ratio to below two to one. This this is like a cause for celebration.
1: Oh yeah! I mean, we had uh, we had a celebration for it. We did. It was it was uh, a big accomplishment. We accomplished that, uh, in the same year that we went uh, that we uh, replenished. We exceeded our replenishment goal of hundred percent. so we uh, became a water neutral company and there was a huge celebration around getting the water use ratio below two, uh, exceeding our replenishment goal and and all those things and it it really validated to the people who had worked so hard that their work meant something to the company and that they had that they could see that there was a, a genuine appreciation. Uh, by the by, leadership for what was being done.
0: Yeah, and that's, and Paul, that is a very important part since we're talking about leadership. That's important part of leadership is to celebrate your accomplishments, celebrate, set a goal, celebrate it, and then set a new goal uh, and exactly. move on. So, okay, so uh, back to your story. You told us about the strategic plan. You set your roadmap of where you want to be and boy, you, you really accomplished this trip. It was a tremendous amount of work, but you did your cross-country trip. So you had the roadmap now how does this emergency road kit come into play this this uh risk mitigation plan
1: yeah well you know as you as you look at that risk mitigation plan and identify those risks you have to be able to uh, address those as you move along and you know we had to ask tough questions we had to ask you know what are the drivers for water use what are the barriers to limiting water use what could go wrong you know, what are the consequences if something goes wrong? That's a, And it's probably not if, Tom, but it's when something goes wrong, because it's never going to be smooth sailing. So those were all keystones in this risk plan. I mean, you know, we wanted to reuse water. Well, what if the regulators said no? Or what if consumers didn't like that idea? So we had to set up and plan what we were going to do. You know, I think one of the big things was, you know, what do we do if we're relying on alternate sources and there's a power failure and the power goes out? We can't pump. You know, it's more than just lights, it's machinery, it's water supplies, communications, it's all these things. So having backups, having alternate ways to achieve that goal should and when something happens are important.
0: So, Paul, what you're describing there really is about resiliency of infrastructure. And uh, which is a topic that, that WEF has put on the forefront of, of national priorities when we're talking about water and wastewater infrastructure, and, and rightly so, because if you don't have water, you know, nothing else exists. You don't have energy, as you were talking about. You don't have food, no health, and so on. So, Paul, tell us about your experiences at Coke during the pandemic over the last year. So how did the company react, and, and was this risk management plan useful? Yeah, it was.
1: It, first of all, the risk management plan was quite useful um, and it was useful in the sense that we were prepared for a lot of different scenarios that, that might come up. So when the virus hit in March of last year, uh, really kind of full force. You know, there were a lot of businesses that immediately shut down. Think, you know, think about all the fast food chains, all the dining re- restaurants, all the dine-in establishments. Well, that's a huge part of our business. It's called the on, on-premise sales, uh, on-premise consumption. Uh, those, that volume of sales, that volume of consumption went fairly flat line. Uh, there were still some, um, but very little. So that segment of business, our syrup production uh, business, uh, went down significantly. On the other hand, at-home consumption went skyrocket. Juice, mm-hmm. milk, like. soda, water, all those things were, were going up. So we had these two dichotomies. One side of the business is doing very little. The other side is, is going like game busters, which presented a problem on the side where there was nothing or very little happening, you know, 25% of the volume or 25% of production wastewater flows went down dramatically. Water consumption went down dramatically and we had to uh, address those. Uh, We had in some of our countries, foreign countries our our bottlers completely shut down. So wastewater plants, I mean, wastewater completely stopped. Mm -hmm. So the, the issue that came up is, what do we do with these functioning wastewater plants that were uh, that now had significantly reduced or no flows? And so we had some plans in place for, you know, mitigating that type of risk. But we then went and helped develop specific plans for shutting down or reducing wastewater flows in these plants, and for do- and for water treatment. How do you now treat 25% less volume? We, we had to address that issue as well. And then on the other side, we have plants that were now seeing 125, 150% of their anticipated flow because their production was so high. And how do we ramp those up? And, and those were a little easier because we had anticipated growth. We anticipated what we would do. So we just kind of flipped the page on what those plants would do to, to set up but it all revolved around being able to adapt to new conditions what were the conditions that we had and what could we do what do we have in our arsenal uh, to move those and so you know allow me to talk to plant managers allow me to talk to environmental coordinators and say you know where is your plan what have you done what you know where are you and how can we take what you have to move forward i mean it wasn't necessarily starting from scratch each time each time but it was taking where they were in their risks, risk mitigation, and moving forward with that. Uh, there were a lot of times uh, there were things that we didn't anticipate, uh, and we had to make sure that we worked with uh, our our facilities and and their counterparts and municipalities to make sure things went well. But all in all, it was uh, a good a good opportunity to take the risk mitigation strategy and the risk that we had identified and use them to, to move forward with plan, with either plans that were in place or to develop new plans
0: to meet risk that we faced. And Paul, it's very, very impressive. The example that you're selling here, because you're talking about adaptability and you had to adapt to two different extremes that were completely opposite you know, like you said, on the one hand, you have little or no flow. And on the other hand, you have 100, 200 percent increase. And so you had to plan for both of these uh, exigencies. Uh, and you talked about planning for the unplanned. You don't just have to plan for one thing going wrong. You look at both, the, if you will, both the polls here, which is what you had to actually in practice do. So let me ask you, Paul, after having gone through this past year, um, did you, you find a silver lining, in what you've gone through?
1: Yes, I think the the most interesting thing about this about this Tom was the uh, the ability of people to find solutions to problems. Uh, people are very, you know. I think as engineers and operators and other water professionals, we kind of thrive on solving problems. And so presented with a problem, uh, people kind of you know, buckled down and, and did that. Uh, what came out was some better uh, mitigation plans for what to do in certain cases, uh, more complete mitigation plans. It was the experience that people now have of going through these types of, of of uh, of of risk and these types of, of stresses, and so that that really helped the system. And the fact that these documents now exist, maybe not in one pl- in one plant, they can also be shared with others and enable uh, able us to move forward. Um, but the ability to to really for people to come together and solve problems was really one of the best things that that we were able to do. Um, as we
0: as we move forward. And, and so, um, you, you know, you're talking about, uh, like you said, studying what was happening here, and, uh, and making people stronger, I, I, it makes me think about, you know, what does not kill me strengthens me, you know, we yep. come out of this stronger. Uh, it also uh, reminds me of another famous quote that I like, this one is attributed to George Santayana, which is, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it.
1: Yeah, that's a uh, that's a pretty good quote. You know, I think one of the things that people don't understand is the value that uh, going through a crisis really presents. It presents you the opportunity now to go back and study that and use that uh, as ways to move forward and to, to learn from it. You know, I think of my my son, Tom, um, my son, Ty um, who's, uh, an air force fighter pilot. Uh, he flies the F-15 strike Eagle and whatever mission he goes on, it may be, uh, a one hour training mission. It may be a two or three hour, uh, that he, that he flies, but whatever he goes on, uh, when he comes back, there's always a debrief. And I'm not talking about, Oh yeah, that went well. I'm talking about A four to six hour debrief over maybe an hour flight. My
0: Um, goodness!
1: And they go over everything, and it's um, it's really intense because it's. I mean, everybody has a part. Mm -hmm. Uh, the The mission control, the pilot, the grounds crew, everyone's involved with it because there's there's some level of responsibility for the success or failure of that mission at each level. And, uh, he would, I can remember many times him telling me he got back at, you know, 10 or 11 at night. And then he didn't leave the debrief till, you know, three or four in the morning, because right there, while it's fresh, they go through everything that happened and then they document it. And so it's, it's, it's learnings and, and we need to do that.
0: Uh, um, yeah, Paul, as you're talking about debrief, it's making me thinking about, uh, other places, other professions that do debriefing um, besides the military, one of them comes to mind, uh, of course, is uh, since you're a big Clemson football fan, is, is football players. Oh, yeah. after, after right after every game, they sit down and they watch the films of the games they just played and they critique the performance. And of course, we know after big court cases, lawyers will sit down and debrief about what they went through, um, analyzing the past to prepare for the future. That's another way of creating our own future, just like you said at the top of our discussion. But it's not something I think that everybody embraces. I, I'm going to tell you experience from my own experience as an engineer. You know, there are engineers who, after they design something, they will sit down and after the project is uh, under construction or completed, and they talk about what went right and what went wrong. Um, not everybody embraces that. I, I tried to incorporate that at, at one place where I was working. And I actually had pushback where, you know, these engineers were upset that that I was... Like dredging up the past, or maybe you know, throwing mistakes back in their face. They they weren't seeing the the value that this is that going forward that we're going to improve. The only way to improve, like you said, is to talk about the things that went right and went wrong. Otherwise, you're gonna you're condemned to keep repeating the same old mistakes.
1: Yeah, that, that's so true, Tom. I think often when people say debrief, they wanna just focus on the mistakes. And a debrief is also looking at what went right. And I think you have, I think we have to change that mindset. We have to change uh, the mindset. This is going to be something bad. Uh, A project is never really over until there is a debrief. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, Mm -hmm. it's part of it. And then it's not just taking those notes that, you know, of what went right and what wrong and sticking them on a shelf. It's, taking those notes and incorporating them into the next project. And then that debrief incorporating to the next project. So it's a continuous cycle of improvement that we have to go through.
0: Wow. Very wise words there, Paul. The project is not closed. It's not over until there is a debrief. That's very important to to remember. You've given us some really great tips here. So I want to summarize this for our listeners so, so we can remember this. We One, we, we need to plan for the future by asking the tough questions about what could go wrong. Two, we need to build a risk mitigation plan that's ready to go when the unplanned hits. And three, we have to be sure to debrief with the team after an e- event. Really great tips. Paul, I'm going to end here. I'm going to finish with one last question. I'm going to kind of switch here and maybe make this a question of a personal nature. I had asked you earlier about silver linings to the pandemic, and and we talked about what you did there at Coke. Have you found any silver linings over the past year for you personally?
1: Yeah, Tom. I mean, that's, um, let me tell you about my mother. She's 92. She's living in an assisted living facility, smaller, little two-bedroom apartment in assisted living. And because of the pandemic, we really have not been able to see each other, to hug each other, uh, for over a year. Uh, the best we can do is window visits. You know, she sits on one side of a glass door and I sit on the other and
0: we talk on our
1: phones while we visit with each other. Wow. know, And, and in spite of, you know, if there's, if there's anybody that could be down because of this, it's, it's someone in a facility like that who can't get out and walk around who, uh, it's kind of, I don't know, confined to a very limited space.
0: Sure, sure.
1: But each day, she is as cheery as can be. And she said, you know, I asked her about it. I said, you know, why, you know why, how can you be so cheery? She says, well, each morning, I wake up, and my goal for that day is to cheer someone else up. Hmm. She has told me of people and I've gotten notes from people that she's just contacted out of the blue, former piano students that she taught, uh, former colleagues in her piano teaching business, um, just friends from over the years that she's just picked up the phone. She found their number and somehow and gave them a call or sent them an email and These are people sometimes she hasn't seen in years, and she just said, hey, I just wanted you to know I was thinking about you, and I hope you're having a good day, and here is a person, like I said, who has every reason to be unhappy, but she spends her time making other people happy, and that cheers her up. And so I just think if we all took that approach to pick one person each day to cheer up, even if we didn't have the coronavirus going around, you know, I think it would make us all, it, we, it would change that person's day, but I think it would make us all change to be the better.
0: Wow, Paul, that's, that's really a beautiful story. And it's a beautiful image of your mother and, and demonstration of her faith and her strength. And you know what? It's a very inspiring to me to, to go out there and cheer up somebody today. And like you said, it doesn't matter, pandemic or not. This is something that we could do all the time. Well, Paul, you've really given us some great tips about preparing for the unknown and managing risk. And uh, very fascinating as you uh, pulled the curtain back a little bit on uh, behind the scenes at Coca-Cola. It's been fantastic having you on this podcast today.
1: Well, thank you, Tom. It's uh, been great being here. Um, I think the important thing is to keep these conversations going on how do we plan for the future.
0: Absolutely. This has been Take It From The Top with your host, Tom Kunitz, asking you to keep listening to WEF's Words on Water podcasts and to our next episode of Take It From The Top. Until next time, be positive and stay negative. Words on Water.